You're listening to Dr. Takesha Jackson-Rudd, also known as Dr. TK, the CEO of the Branding for Abundance brand. This is a podcast that inspires mental health clinicians to brand their mindset, career, and lifestyle for abundance. I am a clinical psychologist, college professor, and psych brandologist. I work with dynamic clinicians from all over the world to assess their business, lifestyle goals, and prescribe branding tools to help them scale their professional resume and produce awesome content, products, and services for their clients. My goal is to empower clinicians to make a great income while making a global impact. Hi, welcome back. This is Dr. TK, clinical psychologist and your psych brandologist. So in today's episode, we will be discussing the revolving door of our juvenile justice system. So just to give you a little bit of background as to why I chose to do this topic today, I actually just returned back home from an awesome week um, for a business trip and also a personal family trip. And so the beginning of the trip, um, Taraji P. Henson actually has a foundation named after her father. And the goal is to provide um, awareness specifically to the black community about the benefits of mental health services and that it's okay to get help. And so I was actually invited amongst multiple clinicians, um, community activists, judges and attorneys to discuss the criminal justice system and its impact with mental health. And so I came from the perspective of the juvenile justice system while also providing some insight into what mental health services looks like actually in the correctional facilities within Southern California. And so how I'd like to introduce this topic today is to utilize what I call the clinical loop. And this will actually be a Um, approach that I will use in multiple episodes because I am a therapist and I want you to understand as the listener, how do we come up with the conclusion to give recommendations and or treatment methods? And so just to give you some education on what the clinical loop is, um, when a client comes in, we have to do a thorough assessment to determine what the presenting problems are or what the presenting problem is. From the information we gather from the assessments, then we go into diagnoses, which could be um, adjustment disorder, depression, anxiety, um, and so forth. From that diagnosis, we then make the treatment goal collaboratively with the client or the patient, okay? From that goal, that tells us what we're supposed to do in the treatment, aka therapy. After, of course, a therapy session, we then have to write a progress note reflecting what we just did with the client. And then from there, we either give them a homework assignment, um, we give them some type of follow-up activity or tool, and we also give clinical recommendations of what we would suggest that they work on until their next session. So I want to use the clinical loop to introduce you to Boy J. Okay, so um, in talking about the revolving door of our juvenile justice system, Jay is 17 years of age. Okay, so his presenting problem is that he also comes from um, an impoverished area, marginalized population, the hood. Okay, and he's been taught not to trust people outside of his home, only to disclose things to his family and um, the church. And so he's already grown up with a lack of trust. Um, He's gotten into some issues, let's just say on the streets with friends or with authority figures. So let's just say over time, he's also developed a lack of trust um, with individuals who say that they care, but then it turns out that they don't. 
Okay, so he's also been exposed to community violence, which also leads to possible trauma. Okay, so the assessment is that boy J comes in with a lack of trust and trauma. Okay, a possible diagnosis after seeing him is that he may have PTSD. And I say may have only because I'm not going to do a full blown case study, but let's just say he has symptomology of post traumatic stress disorder or some form of trauma. Okay, so the goal with Boy J would be ideally to build a rapport with him so that he can open up to us about what he's battling internally. So, therefore, we can provide him with strategies and a form of treatment to help. Help him get better. So the treatment will be to address the problems of the system that he's in that has caused him not to be able to trust people. Um, and as far as the progress notes or recommendations, it would be based off of the identified problems and what Boy J wants to work on. We're then going to document um, how things are supposed to change and put it up to the chain of command, whether it be in his community, whether it be with talking with his caregivers or his parents, so that we can ensure that what we're working on with Boy J actually is implemented once he leaves the office. So now that you have a perspective of Boy J and the idea of how treatment is supposed to happen, okay, now I'm going to introduce you to a demonstration that I did at the um, Henson Foundation over this past weekend in D.C. So the question um, that the attorney moderator asked me was, what does the mental health system look like for inmates and how are they impacted? So I asked permission to do a demonstration in which I had um, individuals in the audience stand up because they are going to be the representation of the person that this boy Jay meets when he's incarcerated, okay? So imagine that he got into some trouble, he hasn't been convicted of a crime, but he's sent to what we call the holding tank, aka juvenile hall. So boy Jay meets the first person. And I'm not going to say numbers because what I really like you to do in this episode is pull out a sheet of paper and a pen. So pause it if you need to. But I want you to tally up how many people does Boy J meet at the end of his entire time in the juvenile justice system this time. Okay. Because just a, you know, a sidebar, a quick fact, um, the recidivism rate, at least in Los Angeles County is ridiculous. Um, seven out of 10 kids, specifically boys come back to the juvenile justice system in less than 30 days. Okay. And so, um, that's 70% that return back to the juvenile justice system, whether it's the juvenile hall, which is the holding tank before they're convicted of a crime. Then they have camp in which they're convicted and they go serve a sentence of six, nine or 12 months, if not more. And then they go home to the community in which they're then released on probation. Okay. So, um, meet boy Jay. He comes into your facility as a mental health clinician and you are in what's called the assessment center. So the first clinician does the assessment. They gather the symptomology and boy Jay gives them whatever information they need. So then the assessment therapist then tells boy John or boy Jay, um, I'm not your therapist. Um, I'm just doing the assessment, but now that you've been cleared from the medical unit and from mental health, now you can go to your regular unit and meet your primary therapist. So then we transfer boy J, probation does, into his regular unit. So in his regular unit in juvenile hall, he meets with his therapist 
um, once a week, ideally, because the therapist has a lot of things on their plate as well, which we'll get to. And he may do a 15 minute session. He may do a full blown 45 minute session, but a lot of it depends on how populated or overpopulated or saturated the juvenile hall is and how crowded the specific unit that he's in um, for this therapist to be able to see him for a full session. So um, as Boy J starts to meet with that therapist, he's then told that he needs to participate in an anger management group because of the things that he's done to even get in jail in the first place. So then he meets with that next person. Um, so make sure you're keeping tallies. We're on the third person, okay? He meets with that person in a group setting um, once a week while he's in juvenile hall to work on anger control and identifying triggers for anger. We also found out in the intake session that Boy J is a teenage father. So once a week, a program comes out on Saturdays and they provide, um, you know, basic psychoeducation about how to, um, you know, communicate to your partner, communicate to your child, basic parenting skills, right? So he meets with that person as well, okay? And then Boy John actually um, was caught smoking marijuana while he was um, arrested. And so he also has to undergo substance abuse treatment. And so he meets with that group as well one day during the week with a group of other kids in juvenile hall while he's in juvenile hall. Okay. So now um, Boy J goes to court and he is um, convicted of a crime and he is told that he now has to be sentenced to um, a camp for nine months. Okay. So when he returns back from court, um, he then has to meet with another therapist because the primary therapist that he was meeting with weekly, he, um, he or she is not there that day. It's their off day. So he then meets with this new therapist um, in the facility that's considered on call, okay? And the purpose of Boy J seeing this on-call therapist is to get transferred into the camp assessment center because every time a child leaves the facility and goes to a new facility, we have to determine if they're stable enough to be transported because as you could imagine, being incarcerated, being told you have to go to camp could bring up a lot of negative emotions and any individual would sometimes appear as though they're unstable, okay? So he meets with this person to do his camp assessment, um, you know, risk assessment to make sure that he's okay. So everything is okay. So then Boy J is transported that next morning at 6 a.m. by probation to the camp assessment unit. In the camp assessment unit, he meets the next clinician. The next clinician tells him, I'm not your primary therapist. My goal is to determine with probation what facility you're going to go to, so I'm going to do an intake. So they do another intake while going over the previous information that the assessment therapist in the juvenile hall gave them. So they're going to review it with Boy J and then make sure nothing has changed, add on what has changed as far as his symptomology, and then they'll clear him to um, get in a bed in a unit in the assessment center until he's cleared to go to camp. So then he goes to his assessment camp center therapist, and he stays there for about three days, um, but now he's cleared to go to camp because they found a bed at the camp that he has been assigned to, okay? So then he gets transported to camp. Again, he meets with a therapist um, that is not his primary therapist, but they're the introductory assessment therapist at the camp now that he's going to be at for the next nine months and he has to then open up to another person um, to talk about you know while he why he's in jail what does he want to work on while he's there for nine months um, can we call his parents you know things like that 
So that person gets acclimated to the camp unit and then he gets assigned to his primary therapist at camp in which he will see him or her for nine months straight for actual full sessions because camps are more like prisons where they're supposed to be more rehabilitative because we have the kids for a longer period of time. Okay, So as he meets with his primary therapist now in the camp, again, we have to follow up with the court order. So Boy J still has to meet with um, the father group on Saturdays. He still has to do the substance abuse counseling, which is once a week for a few weeks in the camp in a group setting once a week. He also has to go now to an anger management group that can range from one to three days um, in which he meets with a therapist and a probation officer to address the issues. Okay. So um, now it's time. um, It's maybe the seventh day while Boy J is at camp and he has um, to attend what's called an MDT meeting, a multidisciplinary team meeting. So his therapist in the camp only works four days, 10 hour shifts. So another therapist has to step in while they've already consulted with the primary therapist, if you follow. Um, They have to step in for that therapist to talk about what goals they have set forth in therapy, the the main therapist and John, to work on during his nine months. So that therapist steps in, they go to the meeting with John, caregiver, the school, and the nurses, and if he's on medication, a psychiatrist, to ensure that his nine month camp stay is as best rehabilitated as possible. So after that person attends the meeting, um, they don't really get to know Boy J. They just, you know, tell Boy J that I'm sitting in for your therapist and the therapist has already told Boy J that he's not going to, you know, the therapist is not going to be there. So um, Boy J continues to see his therapist. Everything works fine. He's participating in all his groups and now it's time for him to go home. So about 40 days or 45 days before he returns home, he then goes to another MDT meeting to plan to transition back into the community, okay, because he's going to be released from camp. So his primary therapist is actually able to attend this meeting but he also was sitting in front of what's called the aftercare program. And the aftercare program sends a therapist out there, um, whether it's the assigned therapist or not, to represent this program, to tell the family and the school um, what the program has to offer him because when he gets home, it's mandatory that he continues treatment for a short or long period of time, depending on his presenting problems once he reintegrates back home. So this representative shows up. They say, hey, I'm from the aftercare program. Boy, Jay, nice to meet you. I've read over your case. Um, This is what our program is about. So he has to get to know them in a very quick manner, sometimes not even until they introduce themselves because he doesn't know who they are. So after... Excuse me. After that therapist um, from the aftercare program introduces themselves, then um, Boy J gets actually assigned to another therapist because the representative that was there is actually not assigned to Boy J's zip code because we are assigned in the aftercare program based off of service areas, at least in Los Angeles County. So when Boy J gets home, he's now introduced to another therapist in which he has to work with for a shorter, long period of time in combination or collaboration with his probation officer. But again, he has to do the same thing that he was doing in camp and in juvenile hall, which are maybe not the father program, but anger management and substance use, let's just say for 10 weeks, because we have to ensure that his transition home is smooth. Okay. So now boy Jay is home. What I'd like you to do is press pause and I would like you to count how many therapists has boy Jay met. And if you got lost, rewind it and listen to it again. Okay, this is one of the bigger issues with our problem. So I'm going to walk you through my clinical loop again so that you can see how all of this is formulated. 
Boy J came in with a lack of trust already, and he's come in with some exposure to trauma. Our goal is to build rapport with him. The treatment is to adjust his problem, but how that problem is played out in the system that he lives in, because the system that he lives in, he's going to continuously have to be introduced to service providers in order to meet the conditions of his probation. The progress and the recommendations, ideally, because of his situation and this I'm going to say epidemic, is to make changes through documentation, aka paperwork, and to get, you know, some paper pushing so that we can change this system. It makes no sense that a child has to meet 12 to 15 providers on average by the time they get home from jail. We are saying that because of the crime that they've been convicted of, they are supposed to go to camp, get rehabilitated, but I don't see how we're going to rehabilitate them if the therapists are burnt out, if they're doing drive-by therapy when these kids are in juvenile hall, if the therapist does care, because I know for sure I care and I expressed how much I care to these kids because I figured out a way, which will be in a whole nother podcast episode, but I figured out a way to build rapport with these kids quickly and to be able to assess the problem and to be able to pretty much triage, which is prioritize my caseload, whether I was on call in the juvenile hall, whether I was the primary therapist in the camp or the juvenile hall, because I've worked at all levels in the halls, the camp and aftercare, which is why I know how all of the programs work, okay? But I figured out a way to get all the needs met with the kids and I simply communicated to the kids on days that I could not see them, but I made for sure that they could make up their session and they would at least, all my kids got a 30 minute session unless they had nothing to talk about. So we want to make changes. And that was the whole purpose of this demonstration is that I wanted people in the audience to feel what it feels like for this boy or this girl to go to the system and then have the expectations placed upon them from the court system, the probation officer, the therapist, and their caregivers to act right when they come home and to trust people to get right. I don't see how that's possible when I can't even trust the person that I talk to because I don't know how long you're going to be around. And remember, I say a lack of trust. We haven't dived into Boys J background. What if he came from a background in which he has deceased parents or incarcerated parents or basically a parent or caregiver who is physically or emotionally unavailable or not present. That also la- that also leads to a lack of trust and a, a higher level of trauma. Okay. So all we're doing technically when we pass these kids from person to person, even though we're quote unquote, a therapist, all we're doing is re-traumatizing these kids, period. And as a therapist, I've learned how to recognize that in a very short period of time where I am very transparent. And it got to the point where I told kids, listen, I know you've met five different providers. I can see it on your chart and I can see it in um, the LA County system because I can see how many stops they've had even in juvenile hall. Remember the recidivism rate is 70%, seven out of 10, which means that I saw a cycle of the same kids coming in and out of the system from 14 to 19 years of age during my five year stint of working in the correctional facilities. Okay. So I really hope that this has been very eye opening for you. Um, I know a lot of individuals have been DMing me on Instagram um, and asking me to show them the demonstration, but put 
put words to it so that they can really hear it in a very clear um, manner. So I decided to do a podcast episode on it. So I really hope that you enjoyed um, this episode. We're giving you a clear understanding of how the system works. Now, granted, this is just my experience of what I've been exposed to in Los Angeles County. Um, Our county, I know, is undergoing, our system is actually going a lot of uh, going under a lot of changes to remove certain stipulations within the correctional facility systems, whether it be juvenile justice and camp, because they understand that mental health is a big deal. And if these facilities are supposed to be able to provide rehabilitative services to the individuals that are incarcerated with the goal that they will transition home in an adequate manner and to be stable, something in the system has to change. And so if you are an individual in which you would love to provide services in the correctional facilities, I would highly encourage you to make sure that you brush up on um, understanding trauma and complex trauma, understanding anxiety, depression versus um, and, and Uh, and PTSD versus uh, behavioral disorders, especially for minors, because I can actually do a podcast episode on that as well. But usually when these kids come in, they're red flagged as conduct disorder, oppositional defiant disorder, and they're not flagged as trauma, as depressed. Um, as something else that's going on with their mood, you know, because they're going through a lot of changes. And sometimes we don't get, we don't have a chance to slow down and get to know them because we're just uh, pretty much moving them through a system. So again, I really hope that you enjoyed this episode. Um, Make sure that you stay motivated by going to my Instagram page, turning on those notifications. And um, I'll include in the show notes, all the shortcuts and my IG name. If you do not follow me on there, it's Dr. TK Psych. Um, I also would love your feedback on if you've had this experience or your thoughts about Boy J and how do you think he feels? What would you do if you were Boy J? Please share with me your thoughts um, on the bottom um, of this podcast um, and I will be sure to read them and interact with you. And if you want to hear more about topics like this, please be sure to let me know. You can always email me and my team at info at drtk.com, I-N-F-O at drtk.com, and we will get back to you um, with your feedback. And so I really hope that you enjoyed this podcast episode. Um, Make sure that you check out Daily Motivation on Instagram, and I will see you on the next episode. Bye. Thank you so, so much for tuning in to today's podcast episode. Remember, you've heard a lot of phenomenal information, so be sure to share this information with other clinicians. Be sure to leave a comment to let me know your takeaways. If you are not following me on Instagram, you can check me out at Dr. TK Psych, and you can also check out upcoming events on my website at drtk.com. Again, thank you for tuning in today. I definitely appreciate you, and I will see you on the next episode.